Chapter Nine of the Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It's an accepted fact that an essentially feminine weakness is a want of discretion, an inability to keep a secret. I should say that these weaknesses were never less to be found in a man than they were in Oscar Wilde. He was, as far as I observed him, the most discreet of men. I suppose, like every other young man, he had had his amourettes. Indeed, one of them was at one time a matter of public notoriety, and few of us have forgotten the article Elle et lui, which appeared in the Echo de Paris, and which very transparently described the Irish poet and his famous inamorata, as minutely observed and pitilessly analysed by a celebrated Parisian chroniqueur who had frequently seen them together it was a liaison of which any man might have been vain of which many men would have boasted i never once heard oscar wilde mention the lady's name any more than i ever heard him refer to any of his adventures or bonne fortune of course wilde was a gentleman now gentlemen are not supposed to do these things but unfortunately many gentlemen do if not by direct statement at least by suggestion but i am not defending wilde here on a charge frequently brought against him of being a fop and an egotist steeped in vanity the very kind of vanity which sets men's cackling about their triumphs in this field i am trying to point out that the charge of effeminacy here also falls to the ground even under the sinister effects of alcohol which was the fons et origo and alone of his downfall and ruin every foolish thing that he ever did having been conceived and executed when he was under its baleful influence his reticence on subjects on which honour bound him to be silent appears to have been absolute i say appears because for my part i never once during all the years i knew him saw oscar wilde under the influence of drink lord alfred douglas states that towards the end in paris wilde frequently got intoxicated after dining with him and would say excuse me my dear fellow but i perceive i am drunk and would lumber heavily from the room i am afraid that there is no doubt that during his last miserable years in paris he did seek this artificial paradise out of a real and palpable hell and i am afraid also that i do not see what else he could very well have done to fill the unforgiving minute when i visited the hotel d'alsace after his death his landlord showing me his room told me quote, he used to work at nights all night long as a rule he would come in at one o'clock in the morning and sit down to his table and in the morning he would show me what he had written and i have earned a hundred francs to-night he would say towards the end it became very difficult for him to write and he used to whip himself up with cognac a litre seven-eighths of a quart bottle would hardly see him through the night unquote. the landlord then pointed through the window to the little courtyard of the hotel and said quote, and there is the table where monsieur melmoth used to sit and take his absinthe unquote. i will add though that the landlord said he had never seen him drunk parfois entre deux vases ça se peut he admitted mais sous jamais a bit squiffy perhaps at times but drunk never 
well during all the years i knew him i never even once saw him entre deux vins the only occasion i remember when there was merely a suggestion of anything of the kind the suggestion came from him was once when we had been dining together at mayor's with another friend and as we were walking back along the boulevards oscar said i really think carlos that we must have had too much wine at dinner we are ballooning in those days he seemed to consider excessive drinking as a want of manners one remembers how indignant he was with the cross-examining counsel who suggested that at a certain dinner-party he had deliberately caused too much wine to be served in answer to carson's question did you give him plenty of wine at dinner he angrily replied as i have said before any one who dines at my table is not stinted in wine if you mean did i ply him with wine i say no it's monstrous and i won't have it he had previously said that any guest of his was welcome to as much wine as he liked but that he considered it extremely vulgar for any one to take too much it was by the way apropos of wine that during this cross-examination he made one of his most effective hits of repartee do you drink champagne yourself asked mr carson yes was the answer iced champagne is a favourite drink of mine strongly against my doctor's orders never mind your doctor's orders sir retorted mr carson i never do said oscar wilde beyond that it was vulgar to get drunk i never heard him express an opinion on the subject i will admit though that when everybody was talking about ibsen's plays wilde was much attracted by the phrase coming home with vine leaves in his hair and it occurred to me that if he thought of a man as with vine leaves in his hair he would think less badly about him and the vulgarity of his act than if the fact that the man was drunk presented itself to him let us think of him then in those mournful days and still more mournful nights in paris not ever as entre deux vins but just with vine leaves in his hair and though he did all the foolish and all the evil things that ruined his life when in this condition as when he laid his information against lord queensbury as when he sought out those inexplicable companionships which disgraced him if he was reckless and sacrificed himself no more then than when his hair was free of the pompre did he allow his tongue to involve or implicate others as an instance of his absolute discretion i will mention the fact that though i knew him from eighteen eighty three till the year of his death i was never aware that he was a freemason it was only late in this year nineteen fourteen that i heard for the first time that he was admitted to the brotherhood at oxford on twenty fifth of may eighteen seventy six may the twenty fifth by the way was as may be observed an important date in oscar wilde's life i heard it for the first time from a mutual friend not a mason himself who had discovered the fact one day when oscar wilde was turning out some papers in his library in tite street and disclosed two masonic documents his certificate of admission to the order and another referring to some promotion in degree after that he sometimes referred to this status of his when speaking with this friend 
and it was to him that he told an amusing story of how he met a brother mason in reading jail it was towards the end of my time and one day as i was walking round and round the ring in the prison yard at exercise i noticed a man another prisoner signalling to me he was a perfect stranger to me i could see from his clothes he was not in prison dress that he was a prisoner on remand i took no notice of him at first because at that time i was on the governor's good books major nelson had been very kind to me and i did not want to get reported for communicating with another prisoner in the exercise yard it is a grave offence i had been punished once before he was here referring to an incident which he described in his own inimitable style to andre gide those who are in prison for the first time he said recognize one another by the fact that they are unable to converse without moving their lips i had been locked up for six weeks and during that time i had not spoken a single word to a single soul to a single soul one evening we were marching one behind the other during the exercise hour and suddenly behind me i heard my name spoken it was the prisoner who was behind me who was saying oscar wilde i pity you for you must suffer more than we do i had to make an enormous effort not to be observed i thought that i was going to faint and i said without turning round no my friend we all suffer alike and that day i had no longer the faintest desire to kill myself we spoke thus together for several days running i got to know his name and what his trade was his name was p he was an excellent fellow but i had not yet learned how to talk without moving my lips and one evening c three three it was i who was c three three and a four eight leave the ranks we left the ranks and the warder said you will have to go before the governor and as pity had already entered into my heart i was alarmed only for my companion absolutely on his account alone for myself i was pleased to think that i should suffer on his account but the governor was altogether terrible he made p come in first he wished to question us apart for i must tell you that the punishment is not the same for the man who has spoken first and thus began the conversation as for him who answered the punishment is double for the man who speaks first usually the former gets fourteen days cells and the latter only seven so the governor wished to know which of us had spoken to the other first and naturally p who was a very good fellow said that it was he and when afterwards the governor had me brought in and questioned me naturally i said that it was i who had spoken first then the governor turned very red because he could not follow us in his understanding but p says also that it was he who began to talk i cannot make it out i cannot make it out can you imagine that he could not understand 
he was much perplexed he said but i have already given him a fortnight then he added well if that's the way you have settled it i shall give both of you a fortnight was it not extraordinary the man had no imagination of any kind jeed remarked that wilde was greatly amused with what he was saying he laughed he was happy to be telling this story he concluded the story by saying and naturally after the fortnight we had a greater wish than ever to talk to each other you cannot think how sweet it was to feel that we were suffering one for the other as time went on as we did not always have the same places in the ranks as time went on i was able to converse with every one of the other prisoners with every one with every one the recollection however of the fortnight spent in the cells had made him very prudent and besides this he had no wish to appear ungrateful in the eyes of the new governor major nelson the governor who was altogether terrible was an official named isaacson the very man for a garde chiom who seems to have won rapid promotion in a service where in those days at least humaneness was not encouraged by the system major nelson who was in charge of reading jail during the last few months of oscar wilde's detention there seems better than his predecessor to have known how to reconcile with a strict execution of his irksome duties that mansuetude which should be looked for in christian gentlemen even when they're prison governors i am giving in facsimile in these pages a letter addressed to robert ross by mr isaacson this person it will be seen answers ross's application on the turned-back corner of his own letter well wilde was very anxious not to do anything to lose the governor's good opinion of him and so he was much upset when he saw the remand prisoner making signals to him i took no notice at first and turned my eyes away he continued but when he had again attracted my attention he made that masonic sign to me which is known as the sign of the widow's son which is an appeal from one brother mason to another when in direct distress and cannot be disregarded under any circumstances and must be responded to how true this is was shown in the old bailey a year or two ago when a prisoner in the dock made the sign of the widow's son to the judge on the bench and the judge laid down the black cap and made the countersign with the tears bursting from his eyes the prisoner was the man seddon an insurance agent who had murdered an old lady who was boarding in his house after plundering her of a not inconsiderable competency and the judge was mr justice bucknell so i was obliged to respond to the man and very fortunately escaped attracting the attention of the warders but i was determined not to run the risk again especially as it was quite out of my power to help my brother mason and how did you manage that oscar he was asked oh i asked to see the governor after i had got back to my cell and i told him how i was placed between my desire not to break the prison regulations and my pledged duty to my order i did not of course indicate in any way who was the man who had signalled to me and a ruse was decided upon 
if my eyes were bad and i couldn't see well i could not be expected to respond to masonic signals so next time i went out to exercise i had been fitted by the prison doctor with a pair of dark blue goggles and after that the man left me alone i must say here that although i visited wilde several times in prison both at wandsworth and in reading and have much information about his life as a prisoner i know nothing of it from his lips he never spoke to me on the subject and i never questioned him on the only occasion on which i made any reference to his prison life and may have seemed to want some information all he said was now robert don't be morbid with regard to all those extraordinary companions of his and the strange doings as to whom and as to which the trials brought out such revelations i never heard him say a word about them the only thing that might have given me to think that my friend was compromising himself with very undesirable people and was acting with incomprehensible folly was that he was fond of telling the story of how he had foiled the blackmailers when they came to rent him over that letter of his to lord alfred douglas i heard this story more than once he delighted in telling it and he told it in picturesque utterance the dramatic side of these squalid interviews appealed to me and the personality of the reptilian youths with their panther-like glide as they emerged from the murk of tight street into the brilliance of his hall he really seemed impressed by them the passage in de profundis will be remembered cliburne and atkins these were the two blackmailers were wonderful in their infamous war against life to entertain them was an astounding adventure dumas pere cellini goya edgar allan poe or baudelaire would have done just the same it is quite comprehensible that he should have been silent about these people and these topics in my company before the exposures at the trials because he knew that i had neither interest in nor any kind of sympathy with people and doings of that sort indeed that the only feeling they aroused in me was a wish to laugh with the kind of cruel laugh that greets the gyrations of a drunkard or the grotesque obscenities of a monkey-house but when all the charges were out and registered against him i might have expected him to say something to explain himself to disculpate himself to cast some of his intolerable burthen on to the shoulders of others but he only once referred to the past in my presence and the only words he said then were these fortune had so turned my head that i fancied i could do whatever i chose then once again while the last trial was in progress he said to me one evening in oakley street when he returned home on bail i saw all those witnesses outside the court to-day robert and they jeered at me they jeered at me and i had always tried to be kind to them nothing else only tried to be kind to them i never heard a single name mentioned nor any reference made to any place or incident i did not know that such a person as alfred taylor existed and i had never heard of any such street as college street westminster these names as well as all the others were learned by me for the first time when i saw them in the papers at the time of the trial 
i had never heard any suspicions expressed as to wilde's morality and normality any more than the usual slanders which are current in england about everybody who is in any prominent position the usual slander in england about a man is that he drinks that he's a drunkard and the next thing is that he's addicted to horrible sins to unnatural vices it was commonly reported for instance that when wilde was arrested there were found on him besides a quantity of other papers writs and so forth several letters from a distinguished conservative statesman who is also a great student of the classics i was at pains to inquire into this report and found that there was not a word of truth in it the thing suggested of course was that the right honourable gentleman referred to was associated with wilde in the pursuits alleged against the latter i actually saw the docket or list of papers and articles taken from wilde's pockets at bow street police station i remember being surprised that several writs should have been found upon him because at the time of his arrest he had three plays running in london while his account at the st james square branch of his bank was good enough to allow him to draw one hundred pounds a few hours before his arrest End of chapter nine